Shalom, and this is Lesson 67 in the series, The Gospel According to Moses, and we're in the book of Genesis, and our focus is going to be on Genesis 28 and verses 10 through 22. We are specifically focusing on that journey Jacob is making to Haran. Rebekah, his mother, overheard Esau, Jacob's brother, basically tell him, this is back in Genesis 27, I'm going to kill my brother for stealing my father's blessing after my father is dead and buried. Now, Jacob certainly deceived Isaac to get the blessing of the firstborn, but he didn't steal the birthright. Esau deceived his father. Both of the boys deceived their father. Esau lied to Isaac because Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Well, anyway, so all this results in Jacob running away. And he arrives here in Genesis 28 in verses 10 through 22 at a place. And he's going to camp out. And there he has an amazing dream, as you may recall. Reading in Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and he lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth, and its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he had that one part of the dream about that ladder going up to God's dwelling. And we have the messengers of Yahweh. Now we would say in our Bible, like it said in the New American Standard, angels of the Lord. And they're going up and down this ladder. Now just as a note, the Hebrew word for angels is malachim. And when we study the Hebrew, it's messenger, not angel. It's been translated as angel. Matter of fact, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, does God's word portray them as beings with wings and white gowns or mighty warriors? Nowhere. All that came from rabbinic midrash and church teachings in the Middle Ages. And those pictures still persist with us today. Now, I've linked you to two articles on angels. One is Jewish and one is Christian. As you read it, I recommend this. As you're reading these articles at the website, if you come across the word angel, use the word messenger instead. Or better yet, use the word deputy. Like deputy sheriff. In other words, a sheriff deputizes somebody to actually take part in and enforcing the law. They are not the sheriff, but obviously they're assisting the sheriff. So indeed, when you actually study the Hebrew word, especially in the Gesenius lexicon, it talks about the fact that messengers, malachim, these are ones who are deputed by God and assigned a task to do. In other words, deputies. So when you read those two articles, again, substitute the word angels for messenger, or better yet, 
substitute the word angel or angel for deputies or, uh, deputies or deputy. And again, the website is www.lightamenorah.org. And remember, menorah spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H. And light of menorah is one word, no spaces, etc. And those two articles, the links are provided for you. So all you have to do is find the picture, which is associated with Lesson 67 in Genesis, and look at the description, introduction to the session, and in there you'll find the links. So Jacob sees Malachim, God's deputies, going up and down the ladder. Now, that's interesting, because the Hebrew basically says these are spiritual beings who are deputed, in other words, they're assigned tasks, and it's almost as if, as we're seeing these malachim go up and down the ladder, it's almost as if the ones going down the ladder are going to complete the tasks assigned to them by God, and the ones going up the ladder are the ones that are returning from completing their mission. That fits the Hebrew meaning. Now, the Torah is silent on that, but it's perhaps one way of looking at it. Now, then there's the ladder which is a way to God, or a way to the Lord, a way to heaven. I've got some thoughts on this, especially on the phrase, the way. Just consider, in Genesis 3, verse 24, the way is blocked to the tree of life, everlasting life. The way is blocked to paradise. The way is blocked back to the Father. Now, the Hebrew word there is derek, and it basically means the way. And the way is guarded. Now, it seems that when we take a look at the written word, and in Jesus' day, that's the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, basically the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, it seems that the written word and the living word, it seems that they come together as one, to be the way back, the way home to Abba, our Father. I recommend that you do this. Read Psalm 119 in English. Look for those verses that would imply that the Torah, okay, and that would be the law in some of your English versions or the word in the Hebrew, you're going to find it's the word Torah. The Torah is called the way and the truth and the life. And then... Later on, if you go to Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 15 through 16, or Deuteronomy 32, 46 through 47, it is really specific. Torah is our life. It means life to the, us. So here we have the Hebrew scriptures telling us that God's Torah is the way, the truth, and the life. But then Yeshua says that he's the way and the truth and the life. And that he is the only way to the Father. Now, Paul teaches us that Torah was not finished. It's as if there was a piece missing in a big puzzle. And this is in Acts 13.39. You can look that up. Actually read Acts 13.38-39. through 39. And Paul's talking about the fact that what the words of Moses or the books of Moses could not do, Jesus did. So the Torah was incomplete. Romans 10.4, you'll remember it, that says, 
through Jesus, the law is ended. And you get the implication. People teach us, see? Therefore, the Old Testament is null and void. We don't even have to pay attention to the Old Testament. It doesn't say that. we got to take a look at the English and go back to the Greek. And we go back to the Greek, and then we have to understand that Paul is teaching a Hebrew concept. But even in the Greek, the correct Greek translation implies is Torah, for law, attains completeness only in Jesus. That Torah is finished only in Jesus. So the written word and the living word become one at the cross. Jesus said it is finished. God's plan that he developed in the Torah. Then and only then is the way open. Back home. Back to the Father. So it seems as if one can look upon Jacob's dream almost as a prediction by God himself showing us, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. There is going to be a way back. God seems to be saying, I have a plan, and it's coming through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all Israel. Not just to redeem the Jew, but the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. And there will be a ladder set up that is completed in my son, Jesus, who is the living word. He's going to complete that which I started in the written word. And together they will become a ladder to my dwelling place. Beit El, the house of God. Now I mentioned when I started this that this is my view based upon the fact that the way is blocked. But it's based, it's based, you guys, upon the very words of Jesus. A ladder is lifted up, but Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up as a sign, as a standard, as a banner, as a ladder. And that's in John 3, 14. In John 12, 32, he says, If I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. It's as if he's going to be lifted up as the ladder. And then all men will be drawn to the base of the ladder to see the way. The way is open back to the Father. And indeed, in John 12, 34, Jesus is talking about himself. And they answered him, We have heard about the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? So indeed, Jesus seems to be talking about being lifted up, but the hinge pin verse is in John chapter 1, verse 51, where he's talking to Nathaniel. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the ladder. Indeed, it's as if in Jacob's dream, God is making that prediction and showing that in some day there will be the way back to the Father. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. The ultimate Redeemer is coming. So it's an amazing dream, and perhaps all this again is related to Jesus. So, Let's go study. Are you ready? Here we go.
Let's go to another section now. I want to go to Genesis 20, Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Yaakov, Yaakov actually, went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran and encountered a certain place. And he had to spend the night there for the sun had come in. And he took one of the stones of the place and set it at his head and he lay down in that place. <laughs> what a pillow, a rock. Okay. And he dreamt. Here a ladder was set up on the earth, its top reaching the heavens. And here messengers of God, notice what actually Fox is doing. He doesn't say angels because it doesn't say that. It says Malachim. Malachim are messengers. You say, but they're angels. No, they're not. They're messengers. Because you have Malachim, then you have, then you have um, uh, Angelos in Greek. Angelos in Greek means messenger, doesn't mean angel. And then translated to the English as angels. And you see, see, there's angels. No, they're not. They're messengers. So I wanted to just show you that. So the messengers of God were going up. and So if you want to say angels were going up and down, I have no problem with that. Okay. So the messengers of God were going up and down on that ladder. And here Yahweh was standing over next to him. And he said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Yitzhak. The land on which you lie, I give to you and to your seed. Your seed will be like the dust of the earth. You will burst forth to the sea, to the east, to the north, and to the Negev. All the clans of the soil will find blessing through you and through your seed. In other words, the, all nations will be blessed through you. I mean, here's God in a dream telling them, I'm giving you the same blessing as I gave Abraham. Here I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the soil. Indeed, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. End of dream. Yaakov woke from his sleep and said, Whoa! Or, why? <laughs> okay. Why? This Yahweh is in this place, and I, I did not know it. He was awestruck and said, How awe-inspiring is this place? There is none other than, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Yaakov started early in the morning. He took the stone that he had set at his head, and he set it up as a standing pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bet-El, or Bet-El, the house of God. However, Luz was the name of the city in former times. And Yaakov vowed a, uh, vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this way that I go, and will give me food to eat and a garment to wear, and I will come back then, and if I come back to the peace of my father's house, Yahweh shall be my God. In other words, the prosperity gospel. That's the prosperity gospel. God, if you do this and this and this and this, I'll, I'll believe in you. Give me what I want. Give me my food. Take me back home. That's a prosperity gospel. We have a problem here, you guys. Big one. And if I come back in peace to my father's house, Yahweh shall be God, my God, or be God to me. And this stone that I have set up as a standing pillar shall become a house of God. And everything that you give me, I shall tithe and tithe it to you. All right. We've got some issues that we've got to take care of. Four of them, big ones. Number one, in 2817, we read, he was awestruck. How awe-inspiring is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And that is the gate of heaven. The actual words are, Hazei einzei ki'im bet Elohim, bet Elohim. Many people say, when they read this, that he's at Jerusalem. Many people. And that is the temple. This is the future place of the temple. 
If you go on the uh, internet, and I bless these guys, I learn a lot from them. Um, the Temple Institute, this is a Jewish site, and these are the guys that are ready to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Everything's done. Um, Chaim Rickman, I believe, is the head, and he comes to the United States a number of times. And I was reading their article about this verse. And they say unequivocally, this means that Jacob was at Jerusalem. Little did he know that this was going to be the future site of the temple. This was going to be the temple. That's exactly what they say. This is Mount Moriah. We've already dealt with that issue. We've already found out that Mount Moriah does not exist. The land of Moriah does not exist because Moriah is only used twice in the entire Bible, and the etymology of the world is the etymology of the word is unknown. Okay, and we dealt with that a long time ago. You'll have to get that uh, that audio tape uh, on that specific section. The Chumash, bless these guys. Let's see what they have to say. So again, verse 17, and they have a little section here at the house of God. This is not an ordinary place, but a sanctuary of God's name, a place suitable for prayer. Furthermore, it is the gate of the heavens, meaning that it is the site from which man's prayers go up to God. Midrachishly, the heavenly temple corresponds to the earthly temple, so that Jacob was at the place that is the most propitious for prayer and service by Rashi. In other words, he's at the temple. Hmm. Now, let me take you into the JPS Torah commentary because they totally disagree. Why? Let me explain the Hebrew to you. The word bait does not mean house. Period. Remember, it's conceptual. Shalom does not mean peace, just as bait does not mean house. It can mean house. Let's take a look. What they're trying to do here, okay, in the JPS Torah commentary is show you another picture, okay, of the word. And so in verse 17, they say this, Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the abode of God. And this is the gateway to heaven. Notice it didn't say house of God. As they make a comment here, they say the abode of God. This is a site where God manifested himself. Okay, He manifested himself there. Where else did he manifest himself? How about the burning bush? How about Mount Sinai? Is Mount Sinai the house of God? No. Is the burning bush the house of God? No. Is Beit El the house of God? No. Yes. It's Beit El. We'll take a look at that. I want to get into the Hebrew. When you go to the Gesenius lexicon, not Strong's Concordance, and you take a look at the word Beit, that's how it's pronounced, the Strong's number is H1004-1004. And you go into the conceptual meaning you find that the concept of this basically place, okay, it's a place, can mean a house, a tent, a fortress, a temple, a dwelling place, or simply a place. What's fascinating is, in the Chumash, they say it's Jerusalem, but we have one other historical fact. 
the place is named Luz. And we know where Luz is. We found it from an archaeological perspective. It's the town today in Israel that's called Bethel. Is it the ancient city of Bethel? Now that's a debate. That's interesting because they think Bethel, this place where he was laying on his pillow, was near the city of Luz. And it's actually outside the city. I won't go into the archaeological thing. It gets too complex. What's fascinating, though, is this perspective from the Orthodox. And it really bothers me that they're not using the Hebrew in a realistic way. The Torah doesn't say this is Jerusalem. And God said in the Torah, and he said in Revelation, don't you dare add anything to this or take anything away from it. And that's where for I say, I'm going to teach Torah. What does it say? What doesn't it say? And we're, if we have questions and we scratch our heads, okay, you have your opinion, I have my opinion. You've got your belly button, I've got my belly button. Big deal. We can speculate all we want, but we must adhere to what the grammar says. It's a place, and we already know that it's loose. So the better translation here is this is the place God made manifest himself. Manifestation of God to Jacob. Or this is the place that God showed up. When you're actually going into the JPS Torah commentary, Sarna, who is the scholar here, he basically said this is associated with an ancient city, Luz, that we know, and then later became the biblical city of Bethel, the house of God or the place of God. By the way, this is fascinating. When you go to Psalm 23, this is a psalm that David wrote. Probably wrote it before Solomon. Okay, And when you're reading Psalm 23, you come to that piece, and this is the last verse in Psalm 23, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I've had people come to me and said, how can David live in the temple? The temple's not even built yet. Because, it's, because bait doesn't mean house. Who dwells in you? And you dwell with him. The manifestation of God is in you. Bait L. Isn't that interesting? Remember what Paul says? The Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word you there, okay, you have to understand in Greek, there are, I believe, six different forms of the word you. We've got one. So if I point to Joe and I say you, and everybody sees what I'm doing, you can say, yeah, you're pointing to you. But if I go like this, you, I'm using the same word. So what, what am I doing? Is it Joe or all of you? You all, okay? Hebrew, the same thing. So when it says, you are the temple, it's a plural you. You all are one temple. The temple is called a house. Where does God dwell? In his house. You are Bethel, the house of God. Based upon the New Testament of God dwelling in us. Okay, interesting. So when we deal with the Hebrew, we do not put words in the Torah's mouth. And we have to deal with that. Now, what's interesting is when I take a look at this, and I take a look at the geography, and I take a look at the archaeology, and I take a look at the culture, what I just did makes sense to me. It really makes sense. What 
the Temple Institute, bless these guys. I've learned a lot from the Temple Institute. Don't get me wrong. I did. But when I come to this and I see the misuse of Hebrew, it drives me crazy. It drives me up a wall. And especially in the Humash. And again, I learn a lot of things from the Humash. They've got a lot of good stuff in here, but you have to take the agenda of what they're trying to do. And really, I wish I could write to Dennis Prager. I'm not going to write to any Messianic Gentile about this because they don't know. I need to write to a Jew who understands Orthodox Judaism, and he was brought up as an Orthodox Jew. And I have to say, what are they doing? I don't get it. Gentiles do not get it because it's not part of their culture. I need to go. I need, I'm going to have to write to him. Anyway, so that's number one. And number two, okay, we'll deal with number two. Three and four, we'll never get there. Number two is 2818. Yaakov started early in the morning and he took the stone that he had set at his head and set it up as a standing pillar and poured oil on it. Now this is interesting because he set up a masaba. Say masaba. Say masabot. Masaba is one standing in stone. Masabot is a whole bunch of them. Okay, so that's the plural. That's the Hebrew for a standing stone. And I'm going to go to Ray Vanderland and... Again, all the commentaries don't do this. I don't know why, but in his DVD called The Promised Land, and again, those of you that actually are viewing Ray Vanderland's DVDs, if you don't have the book, this is 90% of the product, okay? Because this is where you're going to learn stuff, okay? So when you go in here, he gives a description. He's got all the references in here, page upon page of references. Let me talk to you about standing stones. There's an ancient site called Gezer. And matter of fact, that's the first site Robin and I ever went to in Israel. And you go there, there are 10 stones, some of them 20 feet tall, that stand in a silent tribute to now a forgotten event. They think it was a treaty between 10 cities, Gezer and nine other cities. At least that's a guess. That's what they did in Canaan at the time. These are lonely sentinels on the ruins of ancient cities. Such gigantic standing stones provide a glimpse into a custom popular thousands of years ago. Long before the Israelites entered Canaan, pagans in the ancient Near East erected sacred stones to their gods to declare covenants and treaties between cities or individuals and to honor gods. They believed caused an important event or provided a significant benefit. The stones any, indicated to anyone who saw them that something significant had happened in that place. The Hebrew word translated standing stones is masaba, and it basically means to set up. Perhaps our practice of placing tombstones over the graves of loved ones is derived from this ancient practice. Okay. However, it would be more related to what they would call a stella, and a stella is a standing stone that has writing on it. Okay. And maybe that's where it comes from. But anyway, that's a practice in the ancient Near East. Now, Torah comes against them. I'll give you the verses. You can look it up yourself. God says if there's anything, a standing stone related to a pagan god, they're forbidden. Exodus 23, 24 is one verse. Leviticus 26, 1, 26 verse 1 is another one. Deuteronomy 16, 21 through 22. Those are just three examples of standing stones that are forbidden. However, there are standing stones that are accepted. Because Jacob just set one up. And basically, Jacob is saying, something amazing happened here. And it's 100% connected to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For some reason, that seems to be the key. Just as long as you're doing this for the one God, 
the only God, the true God, you're clear. Okay? So, if you're walking by Beit El and all of a sudden you see the standing stone and you're looking around and you say, whoa, something happened here. Now you're looking for the person who set it up so that you can talk to the person and say, did you set up the standing stone? Uh huh. What's the God story? It's a God story. Some significant event happened here. Let's take a look at Exodus 24, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to be shortening this up because what had happened is Moshe, or Moses, he said, he, go, uh, he goes up to Yahweh, um, you and Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel bowed on, uh, from afar, Moshe, Moshe alone, uh, to approach Yahweh, etc., etc. But in verse 4 it says this, Moshe wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He started early in the morning building a slaughter site beneath the mountain and set up 12 standing stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. Masabot. What is he saying? Something happened here that is really cool. What had happened? The Ten Commandments. The covenant of God. He came down and developed a covenant. Okay. In other words, a covenant is not a business arrangement. My wife and I have a covenant. And Israel says we were married to God at Sinai because we entered a covenant. We are the bride of Yahweh. And Yahweh is our bridegroom. Mm, that's interesting. We, as a church, say we're the bride of Christ. When did that start? Passover. That's an exodus. That's a couple of years down the line. Okay, we're getting there. Now, so an amazing event happened. It seems that this amazing event happened is for all Israel because you have 12. At least that's the picture. The Torah doesn't say it, but at least that seems make, that makes sense. You got all 12 tribes. This one big event happened, and it, it's related to all 12 tribes. God and Israel come into covenant. Now, remember Joshua, chapter 3 and 4? They covered, oh yeah, but Bruce is saying, yeah, that's one of, one of my favorites. They crossed the Jordan River, and they set up 12 standing stones. Now, the interesting thing in that story, this is Joshua chapter 4, um, verses 4 through 9. Again, they sell, set up standing stones, and it's for the kids. So they said, when your son sees them, and they say, hey, Dad, yeah, what are these standing stones? Well, let me tell you a story. It's to pass on and to teach the kids. So in other words, Dad, what happened here? Now, I collect standing stones. I learned about this practice, so here's my, and it does stand, notice. And this is a, a, a wild stone. This is not something that's been carved. It's very interesting how nice and flat it is. And it has some uh, dates on here, okay, uh, when this event happened, and it has a certain Bible verse. And so let me tell you, this is a God story. This is when God came to me and told me that I should join my friend to co-teach high school teenagers from a local Christian academy in Egypt and Israel. God told me. Have you ever heard say, oh yeah, God talked to me. Have you ever heard that? This is proof. Let me tell you the story, because this is a God story. These are set up in my office. These are for my grandkids. I'm going to help the grandkids come in there and see the standing stones. I want them to ask me, Grandpa, yeah, what's that standing stone? Well, they wouldn't say standing stone. What's that rock? Okay. What had happened was my friend was planning this uh, Bible study trip to Israel uh, and Egypt, and he wanted my advice because I've been to Egypt so many different times, and he needed some advice on that. And so uh, I was going to meet him for breakfast in a long drive, and uh, I was in the car, and I started praying. And I said, Lord, this guy who's so close to me, I want to go with him. 
I want to go with him. And I started crying. I mean, I, I, it was so passionate that I wanted to be with him. I, I wish, uh, it was just amazing how I felt. But I felt very strongly that I was not to say anything. I was not to show any type of hint that I wanted to go. So we had our breakfast meeting. It lasted only three hours, okay? Uh, and he's a big official at this Christian school, so he had to get back for a meeting. So we're basically done uh, with the meeting. And basically, and, and we're sitting there. And so uh, I was ready to leave, and he says to me, John, um, thanks for all the advice and so on. I said, uh, and I said to him, what can I do for you? And he said, well, pray. <sighs> well, hello. Why don't you give me the names of all the students and adults that are going on the trip, and I'll pray for you every day, you know, while you're in Israel and Egypt. He said, no, I want you to pray for yourself. I said, huh? Why pray for me? So that the Lord would show you whether you should be coming with me or not. And you talk about tears. This was a God event. God told me, and I've got proof. Does God talk to you? Yeah, not talk to you. Okay, he could. Don't get me wrong. He talked to Moses. So he could talk to us as well. But that was his way. The verse is 22.13 in Revelation. Revelation 22.13. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that's what we taught in Egypt and Israel. We started in Genesis 1.1 and we ended off with Revelation 22, whatever that was, again, 13. That was the last verse that we had. We took them the whole way through the Bible in 10 days. You talk about a quick one. But again, we wanted to teach the kids one God, one Lord, one Savior, one gospel, one book. You know what's fun? We taught them on sight. We taught them where the event happened. Wow. Do you have God stories? And what I mean is don't tell me when you were born again boring. Has God acted in your life and you know it? You just know that a series of events had to be God. I bet there are God stories in here like you wouldn't believe. I've got a bunch of them. i got about 20 of these stones. Robin is getting mad at me because the stones keep on. There's more and more stones in there. So what's your masaba? What a great way to start witnessing. What a great way to have a stone have a cup of coffee with a friend, sit down, get your coffee, and set up a stone. And the friend says, what's that? Well, it's a masaba. A masaba? Looks like a stone to me. Okay? And tell them a story. You probably wouldn't do that, but they could be sitting at your house. So we end off lesson 67. And just to let you know, we talked about in the beginning of this session about Jesus finishing the Torah. Jesus completing the Torah from Romans 10.4 and also from Acts 13.38-39. There's a video series that I've done called Five Small Stones. And in Five Small Stones, the first ten videos, these are only five minutes long, but the first ten videos really focus in on how is Jesus the first and how is Jesus the last? How is he the beginning and how is he the end? I've linked you, and again, to this, uh, in this uh, 
session at the website in the session description to one of those videos of five small stones and in that video I again address this idea of how is Jesus the one who completes the Torah how is Jesus the one who finishes the Torah now that link that I'm giving you is a link where you're going to see all 11 of the videos or 12 depending if uh, 12 is going to be published here shortly but you're going to see them all so when you go there and you see them all lined up number one number two number three as you scroll down your web page look for number nine and number nine is the one that deals with this and it might basically give you some incentive to listen to all the all the previous eight as well the previous eight really establish uh, an awful lot of groundwork so you'll understand number nine now in this session we talked about matzabah in Hebrew that is a standing stone and for my wife and I we have our burial plots our headstones all taken care of kind of getting ready for our passing and going home to the Father traveling up the ladder that's been established for us created for us now on our headstone it says our hope is to hear him say well done and for Robin and I we pray we hope that our lives are doing this work called light of menorah will be a matzabah, a standing stone. We hope our headstone will be a message, a way we can say that our lives were an amazing God story, that we would declare the glory of the Lord, that we would express our gratitude to him for entering our lives and creating our lives as a God story. But isn't that our hope for all of us? Don't all of us want to hear our Lord say to each of us, well done? To live as his true disciples and be able to say our lives were an amazing God story. All of us. And so our headstone is just an example to us or a picture to us of a standing stone to let people know that God has come and made us, made our lives a God story. May it be so. Now, before we leave the campsite where Jacob is camped out, there's two things we need to actually discuss. The first is Genesis 28:13, reading from the New American Standard. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. The Hebrew word there for land is Eretz. The Strong's number is H776. Now it's the same word used in Genesis 7, 17 as an example when we're talking about the flood, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and filled up the ark and lifted up the ark, not filled up the ark, and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. 
Now, this is interesting. God just promised Jacob, using the word Eretz, that Israel would be given the whole earth? You guys, because that's how Eretz is used in Genesis 7 to describe the flood. So Israel's going to get the whole earth? Now, I mean, how, how, how can God use the word in two different ways? Now, first of all, Israel is not going to inherit the whole earth. That's so clear in Numbers 34, verses 1 through 12. God sets up the boundaries of Israel. So no, Israel does not inherit the whole world. So if it's not the whole world, what's going on? So either the flood covered the whole world and Israel inherits the whole world, or Eretz in Hebrew does not have a definition meaning the earth. It's an example, clear example, that Hebrew nouns themselves have expanded conceptual meanings. Eretz can mean a plot of land. It can mean my wife's garden out in the back of the house. It can mean the state of Georgia, the land, Israel. It can mean the whole earth. And so, there are many people who are just studying the book of the Bible in English, and they're basically coming to conclusions of the Bible's meaning made from the English in such a way that it makes the original Hebrew meaningless. And we got to take a look at this. And again, this is a good example for you to understand that Hebrew, Hebrew words are conceptual in meaning and not definitional, not like English. Now, a second thing we need to study is in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. Jacob says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, then, oh, and I re and then I will return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone which I've set up a pillar will be God's house, and all of that you give me, I will surely give a tenth back to you. Jacob says, if God does X, then I'll do Y. And you say, Wait, what's going on here? Is this, let's make a deal? Can we make a deal with God? Now, in English, that's how we read it. We've got to take a look at this a lot closer. So you guys, I'm going to see you in Lesson 68. So until then, Lech la shalom Yeshua, Eloheinu, Adonenu, Meshekenu. Go in the shalom of Jesus, our God, our Lord, our Messiah.